All right, so we are continuing um, our series this morning in the, in the book of Exodus. And so if you're new with us, you haven't been a part of the series, the book of Exodus is about God pursuing and rescuing a people to himself out of the nation of Egypt, their slavery, and preparing them for the promised land. And in order for that to happen, it will require faith on the part of Israel, faith in his promises and his provision, a letting go of a former way of life to find a new kind of freedom. And so part of the question that we're asking ourselves throughout this entire series is, what about you? What will it take for us to become the people of God, to let go of former ways of living, to grab a hold of his promises, to lay hold of the mission of God and to enter into the promises, the promised land that he has for us. Uh, it, will, it will require letting go of the riches of this world for a better life. And so what we're going to see this morning is that in order for that to happen, one of the things that has to happen is that we need to hear God say, I promise. Now, when God says, I promise, in Exodus chapter 19, we see this thing called a covenant. A covenant was like a promise, but only stronger. It was sort of this beautiful blend of law and love that was meant to capture the heart of the people, and it was sealed in blood. Sometimes you'll watch a movie, and you'll see two guys spit in their hands and then give it a good handshake to sort of seal the promise and add some weight to it. Well, these, uh, in these covenants in the Bible, they took animals, they cut them apart, they took the blood from the animals, they put it all over their bodies, and they said, let it be done to me as it was done to this animal if I don't hold up to my end of the bargain, if I don't come through on my promise. So Tuesday, uh, two days from now, marks uh, Melissa and I's 19th wedding anniversary. How about that? 19 years since we said, I promise. And uh, I think we have a picture of that, actually. Um, so there it is. Uh, I know what you're thinking. Gosh, he hasn't aged a bit since that picture. Uh, he doesn't look a day older. Well, so it was probably about a year earlier than that picture that Melissa and I had the famous DTR. Uh, that's where you define the relationship, right? And so, uh, which went super easy for me because she was so smitten with me. And uh, so, just no problem in that conversation. But that's where two people who are sort of like trying to figure out where they stand uh, begin to clarify where they're at and what their expectations are. And they sort of say, hey, do you feel the same way about me as I do about you? And when there's clarity about that, you define the relationship. The relationship becomes a bit more formal. And so Exodus 19, in a sense, is God bringing the people of Israel to the mountain of Sinai to define their relationship. And one of the ways that he does that is through this covenant. He formalizes their relationship. And so I'm going to read a few sections of this account, and then we'll talk about what it mean, meant for God's people and what it means for us today. So, actually, in this passage, the people of God are standing in front of the mountain of God, and they're listening to the Word of God declared to them. 
So this morning, as we read God's Word, I'd like for us to stand, to give difference to God's Word, and to hear His voice to us. Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now we move to verse 9, and the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe you forever. Jumping to verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. Chapter 20, verse 1, and God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And now we skip ahead to chapter 24. After all of the law has been read, we read in verse 4 of chapter 24, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel and he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and drank. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but not the Word of God. It remains forever. And you may be seated.
Father, we, uh, we come this morning and we are desperate to hear from your word. So we pray that you would speak to us as clearly as you did to the people that day, that we might hear your word, that we might see your holy character, and that we might be transformed by meeting with you here today in worship. God, we thank you that you've called us into something as rich and as beautiful as this promise of covenantal love. God, shake us from the doldrums of spiritual apathy and help us to experience the raw power, the transcendence of your holiness and love for your people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, I want to give you four words to think about today because covenant can kind of be a confusing idea. And so the first word that I want to give you is the word movement. As you think about covenant, one of the first things that we have to understand is how did these two parties begin to move towards one another in relationship? So whenever a covenant is established, the first thing that happens is what's called a historical prologue. There's a background of how these two parties met and what motivated them to get together. And what we see when it comes to the movement of God in the historical prologue is that God is motivated and moves towards us out of his love for his people. Tim Keller makes this observation in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, about two people who are falling in love. He says what's fascinating when two people are at the height of their passion, they instinctively want to say crazy things to each other. They want to make huge promises. They say things like, I will always love you. So Keller says, real love, according to the Bible, instinctively desires permanence. And here's God moving towards us in this beautiful way of desire, promising, covenanting with us out of his love. Deuteronomy chapter 7, 6 through 8, listen to God's word. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were actually the fewest of all peoples. But is it because the Lord loves you? What motivates God's movement towards you and his people is his love. So astonishing and compelling. Hey, how about you? What motivates your movement towards God? Well, the historical prologue of the covenant tells us we come a little bit differently. In fact, the only reason we come to God is because we're desperate. We don't want to. The people of Israel move throughout the wilderness kicking and screaming and grumbling. They don't want to go. They're reluctant. They want to kill Moses. They're accusing him. And they say, would you just send us back? We're hungry. We're thirsty. We don't trust you. We come as desperate people. Exodus 19.4, God tells us, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So he gives them this image of an eagle. And an eagle was a bird of prey, a fierce bird of prey who would sweep down 
and take out and attack its enemy. And here he's saying, that's what I did for you with Egypt. I came and I attacked Egypt. I was the predator. And eagles also in the Bible are pictured as rescuers, birds of rescue, who swoop in to save. And who do they save? They save the young, the weak, the, help, the helpless, the hopeless, and the desperate. Deuteronomy chapter 32.10 captures this beautifully. He found him in a desert land, in a howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, capturing them, bearing them on its pinions. It's this beautiful imagery of the eagle swooping in to capture desperate, falling, helpless little eaglets. Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, does such a great job. If you remember in The Lord of the Rings, in The Return of the King, there is a moment where Frodo and Sam are on this little rock surrounded by lava, and they have nothing to talk about except the end. It's over. They are in a place of desperation. What does it look like to come to Jesus? It looks like that. It looks like Frodo being carried along by the wings of this eagle. You notice that he's, he's got nothing to offer. He's helpless. He's just laying there. Without them, he's finished. That's what it means to come to Christ. It means that part in our heart, that movement in our heart where we begin to say, I have nothing to bring to the table. I have nothing to offer. Are you desperate? Have you given up on your reputation to save you? Have you given up on popularity to save you? Have you given up on money to save you? Those things cannot rescue you. And if in any way you still believe and rely on them for life and salvation and rescue, then you are not desperate. I hate being desperate. It's the last thing that I want to go through. I'm just like Israel, kicking, screaming, complaining. But if I'm honest, and if you're honest too, so often the most real experiences that I have with God only come when I'm desperate. I don't pray until I'm desperate. I don't give up on the addiction of sin until I'm sick of it and I'm desperate. I don't ask God until I'm out of money, until I'm out of ideas and strategies in my parenting. What God's Word tells us is get used to being desperate. It is actually a good place to be. It brings you to a place of weakness and vulnerability. And as God sends you out into the world to become a kingdom of priests, into a world that is desperate, the places that we most connect with them is in our own place of desperation and vulnerability. Here's the second idea, the mountain. The second word I want to give you this morning is the mountain. Because in the covenant, after you get through the historical prologue, you get into terms and obligations. And the terms of this covenant start this way. I will be your God and you will be my people. Now that started all the way back in Genesis with Abraham. That's what God said. Here's who I am and here's who you are. 
I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, when we get to Exodus 19, what God is doing here is he is beginning to clarify the terms of the covenant. He is giving us a fuller and bigger, more real picture of who he is and of who we are. And so what do we see? We see God is bringing the people to himself in verse 17. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. And this mountain is meant to represent the very experience and image and the person of God in his fullness. Mark Twain once said famously, he who carries a cat by the tail learn something that you could learn no other way. I love that. It sort of gets right to it, you know. I mean, we could YouTube videos of somebody holding the cat by the tail, but that just wouldn't do it justice. I mean, until you actually experienced it, it wouldn't be vivid, it wouldn't be clear. And what, what God is doing here with the people by bringing them to the mountain and giving them this display is saying, you're about to have the cat by the tail. And I want you to understand who God is. I want you to be in the very presence of God himself. And so if we begin to unpack what's happening in this passage, it is amazing. It is an encounter with God that is total. It is all-consuming. It is visceral. It is emotional. It is physical, full body, mind, heart, and soul sort of experience. Look at verse 9. God comes in this thick cloud so that they may hear his voice and believe in him forever. God comes with thunder and lightning in verse 16. He comes wrapped in smoke with fire. They can actually smell the smoke and feel the heat. When he speaks, he speaks with thunder on the mountain. And in chapter 24, when they come to, when it's time to accept the covenant, Moses sprays blood all over their face and all over their bodies. And it says that they beheld God and they ate and they drank. And so what is God's people's reaction to this as they encounter him and his holiness? What do they do? They tremble. They shudder. They shake. It's the right reaction. Now, I want to teach you two theological words. You've probably heard them before, but the first word is transcendence. God's transcendence is what shows up on the mountain. It is his bigness, his his majesty, his otherness, his absolute grandeur. The other word is God's imminence. God is close to us. He's tender with us. He's, his, he's our friend. He loves us well. Now, what's important for us to realize is that every cultural moment throughout history in the church has had a tendency to emphasize one of those over the other. So sometimes in the world and in the church, God's transcendence is really big and prominently emphasized. And other times, it's more his eminence, which sort of grabs the headlines in the church. And what's important for us to think about in this cultural moment is what do we think is usually emphasized? Is it his transcendence or his eminence? You know, sometimes it's hard for me to think about what do we even mean when we talk about God's holiness? What is that? So I have a friend, um, I'm going to illustrate it this way, who took his wife out for dinner. 
he was planning to take her out and to go share this meal at this really nice restaurant. And so it was a, you know, reservation kind of deal, and he was getting ready for it, and he thought, I really want to serve her, so I'm going to take care of the whole thing. I'm going to cover the babysitting, make sure we got the babysitter. She's not going to have to lift a finger. It's going to be great. So the day of, everything's going well, uh, but he starts to feel like, oh man, uh, we're kind of running out of time here, and I want to get the dishes taken care of. I want to make sure the food is ready. The doorbell rings. The babysitter's there. And he, he realizes he hasn't even gotten ready yet. And his wife is just kind of sitting on the couch. She's all prettied up. She's ready to go. But she's not getting up to go get the door. And something collides in his heart. He realizes, I'm kind of ticked about that. Can't she help for even a second? I've been helping all day. I've been doing all these things. And so suddenly this, this, uh, this starts to happen in his heart where he's realizing, I'm not in a good place. So they get in the car and the relationship, the, the conversation just deteriorates until they get into the restaurant and suddenly they aren't talking. And this date is not going the way that he envisioned it. And he's bitter and he's mad and he feels un- underappreciated until this man walks into the restaurant with his quadriplegic wife. She came into the restaurant with the big wheelchair that was electric. It took up a lot of space, and they got into the middle of the restaurant. They were sitting right next to my friend and his wife. And as he looked over at this man taking care of his wife, she would, he would feed her, and he would, he would reach over and wipe her chin with his napkin. He noticed that they were laughing together, that he was telling these little jokes, and she would giggle and laugh He would sort of sweetly lean in and kiss her on the face and tell her that she was beautiful and that he loved being there, being out to dinner with her. And my friend sat there astonished as he sat there and watched this man serve in this holy sort of love. He shuddered. He said, when I watched this in action, this was a whole different kind of love. This was unconditional unreciprocated love and sacrifice. He said, I shuddered. Now, what I want you to understand is that is a microcosm snapshot of what always happens when you and I encounter any kind of holiness in the world. We begin to look at ourselves and go, I am not that And so when the people of God or when we are faced with holy love or holy justice or holy mercy, people treating each other in ways that are beyond us, we shudder, we tremble, we want to recoil because there's something inside of us that says, I don't match up. And so when we have God's people on this mountain in front of God himself, in all of his holiness, in all of his otherness, their instinct is to tremble greatly. So what do we emphasize in our world today? Is it God's eminence or his transcendence? I would say that my temptation is to think of God only in terms of his eminence. That's what I long for. Oh, I just want to be close to God. I have a friend who has a t-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my homeboy, you know, that's great. Jesus is our friend. But let me tell you, let me suggest that I think that when we lose the transcendence of God, 
when we lose his bigness, when we lose his sense of holiness, his otherness, that we lose something huge. That actually the reason that we don't want to think about God's holiness, we don't want to look at his word and take it seriously, is because that little part of our hearts that suddenly feels uncomfortable and our sin is like, I don't, uh, give me the eminence, give me the eminence, just Jesus get close to me. And we want to skip past sitting with our mediator, sitting with Jesus over our sin. And actually it's his transcendence, it's his bigness that allows us to wrap our lives around something substantial that can actually save us and hold us and put our lives back together again. That's the transcendence of God. And what they're staring up at the mountain of God is the only thing in the universe that can possibly be strong enough to save them and to put their lives back together again. Vacations cannot do it. Money cannot do it. The things that we hope for in this world cannot possibly be big enough to hold your life and to sustain it. Do not lose the transcendence of God. Do not skip past His holiness and marginalize our sin. Run to Him. Philip Ryken in his commentary says, the exodus was not just about getting Israel out of Egypt. It was about getting Israel close to God. This is always true in salvation. Salvation is never an end in itself. There is always something greater. And that is God himself and our fellowship with him. And Jack Miller says, to have God close to you and to be close to God is the whole point of human life. Do you see what saves us? It's the bigness. It's God himself. That's what we long for, fellowship with God. Here's the third idea in this covenant. The third word is mission. And the reason that the third word is mission is because God is telling us in these covenant terms who we are and where he intends to take us. I will be your God. You will be my people. And so just like we have more clarity in this covenant about who God is, we also get more clarity about what God intends to do with us and who we are to be as the people of God. And so what kind of clarity do we have? Well, what we see is that the people of God are to be an obedient people. And so if you look at verse 19.5, it gives us a little snapshot of what kind of obedience God expects. In the NIV, it says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant. And so what we're seeing is that God requires nothing short of full 100% obedience then we get into Exodus 19.9. God says, I'm coming to you in the cloud that my people may hear when I speak with you and that they may also believe in you forever. So God is calling for full obedience to his word. He's saying that in order for you to obey fully, you've got to hear the word of God and then you've got to put your trust in the word of God. And then Exodus 23 is the beginning of the Ten Commandments. It's the fundamental place where the rest of the commandments grow and God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And the next commandment is that we shall keep ourselves from idols. Meaning that fundamentally, for us to obey all of the Ten Commandments starts with commandment one and two. This place in my heart of who will be my God and what will I serve. And so God is saying to us that covenant faithfulness 
requires obedience from his word, trust in his word fully, and also from the heart. It must be an obedience from the heart. Now, this is, this is big stuff. And if you haven't felt desperate yet, buckle up. Because God is saying, I have a big vision for you. Your vision for what your relationship with me is really small. I have a big vision and a big mission. And this is where I'm taking you. It may be hard to believe that you could ever trust God and obey God and do all the things that he wants you to do in his commandments because you want to do them. But we're going to get there. And when you get there, you will be my treasured possession. So the second thing that God tells us in this covenantal language about who we are is one, we're to be an obedient people, but secondly, we're going to be his treasured possession. The word is segala in the Hebrew. It means that though the king owned all the land and though he owned everything under his reign, in his private headquarters, in his own bedroom, he had a secret stash of coins and treasures and things like that. This was the treasured possession, the segala of the king. And this is how God describes his people. He says in 19.5, If you will obey my voice fully and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession in all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now the contingency there can be confusing. What do you mean if? If we keep your law and obey you fully, then we get to be your treasured possession? Uh-oh, because I don't. What in the world is God talking about there? I want to remind you that one of the things that Jesus does when he talks about the law and he talks about the commandments and love, he almost uses them interchangeably. He who loves me will keep my commandments. He it is that keeps my commandments. He is the one that loves me. So Jesus talks about this relationship between obedience and love as sort of this seamless togetherness. And when you have that, that's called love. Now, here's what uh, Tim Keller talks about in his book, Meaning of Marriage. He says, isn't it interesting when two people begin to fall in love, they begin to do research on each other. When you sort of get attracted to them, let's not say it's stalking. I mean, that's a little over the top. Uh, although if Facebook existed back in the day when I was dating Melissa, I probably would have been digging in, you know, profile pics and trying to, but what are we doing? We're trying to find out what is she interested in? What is he or she like? What are their desires? What are their hobbies? And as we start to learn what they want and what they desire, we think, I want to give it to them. I, I want to do that. I want to go be a part of that with them. In a sense, this research is we're trying to discover their will. What is it they want? And so when Melissa and I started dating, I found out that by listening carefully, not in a conversation with me, but to somebody else, that she had this favorite restaurant in Augusta called the Bow Weevil. And so when I first went out on a date with Melissa, guess where we went? We went to the Bow Weevil. It was an easy decision. We went there because I wanted to. And why did I want to? Because I knew that was what would make her happy. 
When I discovered that this was her desire, this was what she loved, I said, that's where we got to go. And that's what this passage is teaching us about the commandments of God and our obedience and going deeper and deeper into the love of God. What God is saying is that as you obey and as you are connected more and more deeply to me, then what you will begin to see is that your happiness, my happiness, my joy is wrapped up together in your own. And when that movement starts to happen in our hearts, God says we will have something amazing. We will be his treasured possession. What's even more beautiful than that is the third part. The third part of what it means to be God's people. It means that we become a kingdom of priests. See, the people who begin to have the law of God actually in their hearts, bound up in the happiness of God, what makes God happy makes me happy. I do it because I want to. That's like having the law in your heart, written on your heart. And as people are transformed that way and they begin to move out into the world around them, reflecting the character of God, then we become a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. What is that? Well, the kingdom of priests idea says that a priest is somebody who represents God before the people. And he represents the people before God. He's, a, he's somebody that says, this is what God is like. He intercedes for, he prays for the people. Who is it in your life that God might be calling you to say, this is what God is like. As you spend time with me, I want you to see what God is like. Are there any people in your life that are lonely, that need a friend, that are distant from God. They can't figure out what God is like. Their life is broken. It's a mess. God says, actually, my vision is not just for Andrew and Andy and Ben and the elders to be the priests for King's Chapel and in this community. My vision is that everyone will be a, a, a priest. All of you will represent God before your community and to the people that you go to school with and that you work with. And by seeing you, they will see the love and the mercy and the justice of Jesus. One of my favorite stories um, about my mom who came to Christ shortly after um, I came to Christ and uh, took a job with Perimeter Church early on in her life, uh, in her spiritual journey. And while she was there, uh, she worked as an admin for their community service department. And so one particular day, their community service uh, project was to go into this low-income apartment complex and to run a cookout and a party just for the kids. And so all these kids came out and their parents came out. And my mom was sort of on the sidelines trying to make sure everything's going well. And this woman named Victoria came down. And she's like, what in the world is this? And my mom's like, oh, well, you know, this is a church and we're just here to have some fun for the kids. And she goes, I haven't been to church in ages, you know, and uh, I just don't know how anybody has the time. My kids are eating me alive. I, I don't know what to do with them anymore. And as they're talking, my mom says, oh, funny you should say that. So next Saturday, there's actually a parenting conference at our church. Would you like to come? Just be my guest. And she looks horrified. <laughs> what? Just, she kind of fumbles out an excuse. Well, my car, it's kind of broken down. I don't think I could get there. And so this other woman who's with my mom says, I'll drive you. She's like, uh, <laughs> what? I, my kids, who's going to take, we got childcare. 
You have childcare? Yeah, just come on, just come on. So the next Saturday, parenting conference is happening. They drive to this apartment complex. They pick up Victoria. They drive her. As they get to the church, there's this big man with this warm smile and a handshake, and he's greeting them. And she says, for the first time, Victoria says, I don't feel like anybody has been that happy to see me in a long time. What is going on here? They get in the building. She feels equally greeted by the child care workers. They seem really genuinely happy to host her kids for the morning. She escapes from them, goes upstairs, get a cup of coffee. Somebody's made this great hot cup of coffee. Somebody invites her to sit with her. Hey, I haven't seen you before. What's your name? I don't have anybody to sit with. Would you sit with me? She's like, sure. She goes in. The couple who's speaking, they're doing this great teaching, but they're vulnerable and they're honest about their own parenting weaknesses. She can't believe it. People struggle like this. What in the world? She listens to their teaching. She's like, this is amazing. She starts to leave. She feels hope for the first time in a long time. She goes home. She's dropped off. My mom says, hey, we'd love for you to come back to church. She says, yeah, but my car well, that next Thursday, see, my stepdad, my stepdad's in a discipleship group at Perimeter, and he happens to know some people who are good at cars, and he's by this time heard about Victoria, and he's organized a little cohort to go over to her house to knock on the door in the middle of the week and say, hey, heard you're having some problems with your car. She looks at them, and she trembles. What is this? She says, who are you people? Who are you people? And of course, we know the answer. We are the church of Jesus Christ. We are a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, called to move out into the world and reflect his love. Isn't that beautiful? Don't you long for that in your life? Don't you long to be a part of a team like that? Don't you long to live out this obedience from the heart with God out of your whole heart because you want to? I long for that. But you see, we have a problem. We have a problem here on this mountain. And it's that there's a huge gap between what we want to happen and what actually comes out in reality in our life. And so the fourth word is mediator. The mediator is the go-between. None of us live up to the covenant. None of us live out full obedience as a kingdom of priests. What's interesting about this passage is in 24-7, God lays out the covenant and they say, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. That might be a little bit of what you're feeling right now. Yes, I want to. Let's charge the mountain. God says, no, there's limits around this mountain. And if you, go, if you don't have a mediator, there's big trouble. So they confirmed the covenant. In 24, Moses took the blood, he threw it on the people, and he said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made, you, made with you in accordance with these words. Now as I think about that, and I think about what they had entered into, this re relationship with God and had covenanted to him, and this blood became uh, a marker for them, uh, and a seal for them of what they were entering into, they must have shuddered and thought, what are we to do? You know, just a few weeks later, after this bold commitment, we will obey every word and be obedient. They build a golden calf 
And they say, we don't know what happened to God. And we don't know what happened to Moses. We're going to abandon the whole thing. And so often, (laughs) that's exactly what happens in our lives too. And so God secures a mediator for us. Listen, I am not in awe of God's transcendence the way I need to be. There is not wholehearted obedience from the heart because I want to. I don't feel desperate. I hate feeling desperate. And I do everything in my life to insulate myself from getting to a place of desperation. Kingdom of priests, I don't want to see my neighbor. Put the garage door down. I'm too tired. I'm too busy. And I'm too afraid to impact my neighbor. Nobody fulfills the covenant. And so what we need is a mediator. Psalm 25 says, Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly. None of us are blameless. So what do we do about that? Well, the mediator that we have is Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, what we see is that Moses consecrated the people of God. He brought them to God. He prayed for them. He interceded on their behalf. He purified their sins through sacrifice. He consecrated. But Moses only served to show us a picture of the great mediator, Jesus Christ, who would come and fulfill the whole covenant, all of the covenant demands, full obedience, not moving to God just because he has to, but because he always wanted to, full of the Holy Spirit, obedient from start to finish. And the blood that is shed in the life of Jesus on Calvary's mountain becomes for us the fulfillment of this covenant and becomes the answer to the riddle of God's eminence and his transcendence. Where do God's closeness and his otherworldliness come together in the person of Jesus? That's how we get close to him. Now, the author of Hebrews, he actually preached a sermon on this very text. And so I want to close with what the author of Hebrews has to say about this beautiful mediator that we now have and what it does to us as the people of God. He says in Hebrews chapter 12, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded and neither can we. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to judge, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel speaks condemnation to us. But the blood of Jesus speaks freedom and cleansing and joy. This is such a beautiful picture. Instead of a group of people trembling at the foot of the mountain, we can't go up, I'm terrified. 
he sees a different mountain. He looks up at Mount Zion and the whole earth, the whole mountain is alive with people. There's a city up there worshiping, joyful in the presence of God. This is God's vision for us. This is the bigness of Jesus' blood for us. And then we look at Hebrews 10 to close. Hebrews chapter 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. For by one sacrifice, he has made us perfect forever, those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law in their heart. I will write them on their minds. And then he says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. You know, there's so many applications that we can make in this passage. We could talk about hearing God's word more faithfully, obeying. We could talk about coming to worship and this place. But I, I think that the thing that I, I have felt most this week is desperate for Jesus. I wonder if where you're at this morning. Which side of the mountain are you on? As you think about God and where you're at with God this morning, I don't want you to just sit here and look at everybody else around you. I actually want you to take a minute in your own heart. Say, God, where am I with you? What side of the mountain am I on? As I think about where I'm at with you, do I see trembling? and Do I see fire and smoke and death sentence? Am I afraid? Or am I looking at Mount Zion because of the, the blood shed on the cross for me in the person of Jesus? The law, the covenant fulfilled for me. And I'm coming to you, Lord Jesus, desperate. Desperate for you to save. Desperate for you to make me new. Desperate for your law to be written on my heart that I might move out into this world with this people as a kingdom of priests. Oh God, let it be true of us. Let's pray this morning. And thank God for his covenant faithfulness. Father, we, we come to you this morning in awe, blown away, and desperate for your love, for your holy love to lead us to new places in our life, to, to give us the courage to let go of all the stuff we hold on to, to try to find life. And we look at it and we say, it is not satisfying. It is not fulfilling me. And yet still we will try and try and try because we do not understand your holiness and your holy love. We are afraid. It doesn't make sense to us. And so thank you, Lord God, for sending your mediator, Jesus Christ, to represent God to us and to represent us before God. In you, in Christ, 
May we experience new life this morning as the people of God, as a royal priesthood, and as a holy nation. Move us out with power. We pray again that you would reaffirm your covenant to us. In Jesus' name, amen.